this time if you'll open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 will be in verses 21 through 23. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you and you want to look to that, that's on page 983 in your pew Bibles. I wrote it down this week, just now. Colossians 1, verse 21 and following. Please, please stand with me, church, as we honor God's word by the reading of it out loud. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that in what you have revealed to us about who Jesus Christ is, you show us now what that means to us from your word, through your spirit. Still our hearts this morning. Let us hear clearly that Jesus Christ has come to reconcile even us. Speak through your word. Silence my opinions, Father. Let your words speak through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the, the most critical things that we can do with the scripture is to apply it. A lot of times we treat God's word like it is a, a historical document or a, a scientific book or just a book of rules. But is that what this book is? God's word, in some ways, it does tell us History, doesn't it? And it does tell us some science, doesn't it? And it tells us how to live, but is that what this book is? Really? At its core, it's a story. It's the grand story of God's interaction with humanity. And more importantly, it is the story of how God is redeeming for himself, reconciling to himself a people that will belong to him, eternally. And if it is the story of God redeeming for himself a people, and we believe that we are among those people, then this book is the story of our redemption, isn't it? And it's all centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's not about you and me. The Bible's not about us but we're a part of it. We're a part of that story. That means in some way or another, everything that is written there in the Bible has some relevance to us, some relevance to our, our lives. But what that relevance is is not always clear to us, though, is it? If you've read your Bible, you sometimes question, what does this have to do with me? Let me give you an example. When we read about uh, David and Goliath, we kind of know that there is, there's supposed to be some sort of application to your life and to my life from that story. But what is it? 
Should, should the application from that story be that we are all little Davids, and if we'll just pick up, you've heard this before, if you'll pick up five smooth stones of faith and courage and hope and strength and love, and we give it our best effort, and we just trust God, then we can defeat our Goliaths, whatever those Goliaths may be. Is that why that story's in the Bible? It's not. If we understand the Bible as the story of our redemption by God, then we're going to first try and figure out where old David and Goliath fit into that story of redemption. And where do they? Well, well David was God's anointed king, called on by God to lead his people into victory against their enemies and secure for them what God had promised to their ancestors. That's, that's David's role. So let me ask you, are you God's anointed king called on to lead God's people into victory? Please don't raise your hand. (laughs) Are you being called on by God to fulfill the covenant promises that he made to Abraham? No, I'm not, you're not, but Jesus Christ is, isn't he? Jesus is the new and greater David. David then is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus. So who then should we identify with when we read the David and Goliath story? Not David, not Goliath. In truth, we should probably identify with the Israelites, the people on the sidelines, a people so paralyzed by fear and seemingly incapable of trusting that God would provide for them a Messiah, an anointed king to deliver them from their greatest enemy. That sort of application is exactly what Paul does for us today in our text this morning. Last week, he pointed to Jesus Christ as the preeminent one in God's story, the one whom the entire biblical story, the entire Bible pointed to, the the one who all of creation was pointing to. It was Jesus Christ who we saw was the one that was reconciling to himself all things. Do you remember that? Verse 20 last week. On this morning's text, Paul takes that truth about what Jesus is doing and he tells the Colossian church, you are among that set of things that is being reconciled to Jesus Christ. And that's true for us this morning, Del Cerro. We are included in that set of things that Jesus Christ is reconciling to himself. If he's reconciling to himself all things, we're a part of that. Now there are three verses here, just three, three sections that I've broken this down into, and they go in line with the sermon title this morning. If you see that on your notes, it says once, now, and if. That's your outline. Once, now, if. Once you were not reconciled, Now you have been reconciled. And then there's that dogged little word, if. We'll talk about that later on. So if you still have your Bibles open, look with me at verse 21. Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And we're just going to pause right there. Christian, this describes who you used to be. 
who you once were, who we once were. Church, how is it that we were once alienated and hostile in mind before we were brought into Christ? Would you use those words to describe a non-Christian? Think about a non-Christian you know. Would you describe them as alienated and hostile? If we're honest, we probably wouldn't use those words, would we? We wouldn't use those words to describe most run-of-the-mill non-Christians. I'm not talking about your Richard Dawkins-type atheists. I'm not talking about the Taliban. I was not talking about the bumper sticker I saw as I was exiting onto 70th Lake Murray this morning. A card on my left had two stickers on the bumper, and it was uh, the head of a chimpanzee with uh, a crown of thorns. That's, um, that's hostile. But I don't, I don't think that's your run-of-the-mill person who isn't a Christian. Those are extreme cases. I, I mean the people you know, the people you're related to. Would you describe them as alienated and hostile? I don't think we would. We might say they're unbelievers, wouldn't we? We might say they're sinners. We might say that they're lost, that they're not following Christ. But but we, we wouldn't say, probably not, we wouldn't say that they're alienated and hostile. You know why? We don't use those words because they're strong, aren't they? They're kind of offensive. I think we don't use those words because we don't recognize the depth of the sin problem that we had before we came to Christ and that those outside of Christ have right now. Let's examine for a moment, let's do a case study, your normal American 20-something. Growing up, his family went to church occasionally when it was convenient when there wasn't something else more pressing going on. Maybe he raised his hand and prayed a prayer to accept Jesus when he was at youth camp. He has some Christian friends he hangs out with. He has some non-Christian friends that he hangs out with. Pretty decent kid. Got okay grades in college. He's got a pretty good job now. He loves his mama. All around, he's, he's as American as apple pie. Average, young, American guy. At work, He does whatever he can to get ahead. He'll tell a lie if he needs to. He might cheat a little if he needs to. He'll talk bad about others to make himself look better. He cuts corners to save time. He'll do whatever is necessary for the good of the company. He works hard and his bosses like him. He lives with his girlfriend so he can save on rent. Marriage is out of the picture for them. Homes are too expensive. He doesn't really like the idea of kids anyway and they both have a lot of debt. Not to mention he's not really interested in committing to this girl. Somebody prettier might come along. Gathering with God's people, not an interest to him. Waste of time. All the people in the church are hypocrites. The church is so old-fashioned and irrelevant. Why bother, right? Isn't it just enough to know and to believe that God exists? And can't everybody find their own way to God anyway? Does that describe anybody you know? Maybe, a little bit. That's that's your run-of-the-mill American 20-something. I know a lot of those guys. 
Now think, if you were to ask him, do you feel alienated from God? He'd say, no. God loves me for who I am. Right? That's what he was taught. If you were to ask him, do you hate God? He'd say, no, I don't hate God. I love God. Only he has no interest in obeying God. No interest in getting to know him better. No interest in being with God's people. Really no interest in anything to do with God. In a word, you wouldn't say he was alienated from God or hostile toward God. You'd just say he was apathetic. He doesn't care. That's why we're prone to say he's just not following Jesus at this point in his life. Or maybe he's backslidden. So why would Paul look at this person who, let's be honest, there is zero evidence, zero evidence that this person is a Christian. Why would Paul say this young man is alienated and hostile toward God? Well, in Romans 1, if you know that passage, you see this this snapshot of both our alienation from God and our hostility toward him. In Romans 1, you have this picture of God's static relationship with with those who who are outside of Christ. It's a picture of the natural state of any given person before redemption has taken place. In that chapter, we see someone who, because of their sin nature, they have turned away from worshiping their creator and turned toward worshiping created things. We're all worshipers, aren't we? We'll either worship God as he has revealed himself to us or we'll worship someone else or something else. But we will worship, mind you. We will worship. We are made to worship. We are worshiping creatures. And all around us, creation is declaring to us, worship God. God made everything. Worship him. It's plain to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We are without excuse then if we choose not to worship God. But because of sin, it's exactly what we do. We lower our gaze. We, we turn inward on ourselves and our hearts are darkened and we become deaf and numb to the one we were made to glorify. And because that's what we're naturally bent towards doing, look what God's response is. If you're there in Romans 1, look at verse 24. Three times we see God's exact same response. Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Keep going to verse 26. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Keep going to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Why do we use the word alienated to describe someone like this? Well, do you see who the actor is here? God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up three times. Paul says, because of their sin, God gave them up to their own desires. He turned them over 
to what they wanted most. He treated them like the strangers that they wanted to be treated like. God is the alienator. The alienatee is the one who wants nothing more than to chase after the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life, as John tells us. God withdraws his hand of of protective grace from the sinner and allows her to go headlong into her greatest desires. That's the natural state of the non-Christian. Anyone outside of Christ is not alienated from God unwillingly, but willingly. That's why in verse 21 it says that not only were we alienated, but we were hostile in our minds towards God. Hostile, that's an active verb. Alienated is passive. Hostile is active. Our disposition towards God is one of hostility, enmity. We love the world and the things of the world so much that we made ourselves out to be God's very enemies. That's what James 4.4 says. Write this down, James 4.4. Jesus' brother tells us, do you know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We do, we pursue whatever we want most. And in our sin, what we want most is to be the Lord of our own lives. And the world, the world welcomes that. The world affirms that. The world affirms our sin and says, Dustin, you're right to go your own way. You're right to follow your heart. You're right to be whoever you want to be. No one can tell you what to do. Glory be the name of you. And we listen to that. And in our sin, we're drawn in because that is exactly what we want to hear. And we become friends with the world and the world's ways. So someone might, they might not say that they're opposed to God, even though they are in every way conformed to the world. But God would say, you are. You are opposed to me. And his opinion, that's the one that counts, isn't it? If by our lives it is clear that our allegiance is to the world, then we need to realize that we have made ourselves out to be God's enemies. We've made ourselves to be enemies of God, both by our nature and by our choices. And that's why our passage says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. See, our works, they show our allegiance, our loyalty. Our works are the fruit of what is happening in our hearts. We saw that when the Spirit is working in our hearts, good works begin to come out. But when darkness is working in our hearts, it is the opposite. Before we were brought into Christ, our deeds revealed that we had a deep, deep need to be reconciled to God. So verse 21 shows us who we once were. It shows us why we needed reconciling. And if you're not in Christ today, I'm glad you're here whoever you are, 
Verse 21 describes who you are right now. Hostile. Alienated from God. That's who you are still, but there's good news. There's always good news. God does not leave us like that. He he doesn't leave us as enemy hostiles, far off from him, dead in our sin, and wanting nothing to do with him. Look at verse 22. He has now, once we were, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Once we were alienated, once we were hostile, now, now he has reconciled us in his body by his death. Amen. Jesus Christ's reconciling work has been applied to you, Christian. Even when we were his enemies, we who were living lives totally opposed to his kingship, totally opposed to his rightful reign over our lives, he has now reconciled us. He has now brought us near in his body of flesh by his death. We were enemies. We are now reconciled. See, Christ's work is far-reaching. He's gone into enemy territory to draw us out. We were not in some neutral zone, no man's land. For there's no such place as no man's land. We are either in his kingdom or we are living opposed to it. And Christ has brought us in. He has reconciled us to himself. What I love about verse 22 is this. Not only does the text say that Christ has reconciled, it says why he's reconciled us to himself. There's a greater purpose to this. Look how personal it is. He reconciled us to or or so that, what? He could present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you see that? It's not just something that has happened. It's something that is also going to happen. It's a future thing. We've been reconciled. We've been brought under Christ's lordship, brought into his reign. Or like we saw a few weeks ago, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is the reconciliation that has already taken place for us. And while we're in that kingdom, we're being prepared for something big. We're being prepared to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ. Friends, this is a picture of Christ's love for us. He didn't just reconcile us to the Father and say, good, now you're on your own. He reconciled us to himself because he wants us to be in fellowship with him for eternity. This is is wedding language. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. When he tells us about what our marriages should look like as Christians, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he answers this question, how did he love the church, Paul? How did Christ love the church? 
Well, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see the similarities? In Colossians, Christ has reconciled us so that he can present us to himself holy and blameless and above reproach. In Ephesians, Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her. That is, to make her holy so that he can present the church to himself without spot or blemish or any such thing. Christ's love for the church is such that he would die for her so that she would be reconciled to him. And then as she lives, he washes her, washes her with the water of the word, the gospel. The, the church's life, your life is purified constantly by the gospel. Over and over again, we are washed with the good news of Christ so that we would be prepared for eternity with Christ. The gospel teaches us to love him back. We have to be reminded over and over again that it is Jesus Christ that is saving us. It is Jesus Christ who is cleansing us with his word. It is Jesus Christ that has reconciled us to himself so that we could share in his inheritance as his forever bride. Some of you look at your old life. You look at your old life apart from Christ when you were enemies to Christ. Just think back. For some of you, it's on your mind all the time. And you look back at that and you feel guilt. You still feel ashamed of who you were. I want you to see something very, very clearly in this morning's passage. His death was enough to reconcile you to him. The cross of Christ is all that is required to bring you into fellowship with him. Many of you have, have failed in your marriages. You've failed as a parent. You may have destroyed your family. You may have destroyed your career because of your sin. There may be parts of your life now that are a direct consequence of who you were then, and you know that you will always feel the consequences of that for the rest of this life on earth. Not a day will go by when you will not be reminded of your past sin. You need to see clearly here, the cross of Christ is all that is required. It is all that is required to bring you into fellowship with him. He has now reconciled you in his body by his death. You are now a part of the very body of Christ, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. You've been unified with Christ because Christ gave himself up for you. Even while you were living opposed to him, he gave himself up for you. His cross is all that was required. So listen. Never think that your sin 
is greater than the cross of Christ. Whatever doubts you're plagued with, they're just doubts. They aren't true. Christ's work goes deep enough. His cross goes far enough to cover even the darkest, even the gravest of your sins. For those of you who know you are in Christ right now, you're confident in him, you're trusting in his work, you know that what we've read this morning in this passage is true. And yet, you struggle with sin. You struggle with angry outbursts, or laziness, or bitterness, or envy, or lust, or you're constantly hurting people with the things that you say, and you don't want to. There's a promise here for you. Christ's aim, his aim, his goal, is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And let me tell you this morning, Jesus Christ always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Always. He's washing you even now constantly with the water of his word. Constantly. You can trust him. That's why verse 23, if you'll look there with me, says we must continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Let's read it again in its context. He has now, verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then he says, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Jesus Christ, through his gospel, is preparing you for eternity with him. Over and over again, we as Christians have to go back to the gospel. We never get past it. There is no advanced gospel. It's just gospel over and over again. We've got to preach it to ourselves and to one another every day because it is through that gospel that we're being saved. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, I want you to look again at verse 23. I was still stuck on it. You might still be stuck on it. That word, if. Paul says in verse 22 that we have been reconciled, but in verse 23, he seems to qualify that statement, doesn't he? We've been reconciled if, indeed, we continue in the gospel. Why did he do that? There are a number of ifs like these in your Bible. We saw one when I came here to you on April 15th, our candidating sermon. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And then he said, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hebrews 3.6 says something similar. Hebrews 3.6 but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed 
we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In each of these passages, it is clear that Christ's work has been accomplished already if we will only continue to hold on to the hope of the gospel. Logically, that's not how we think, is it? We don't say something has happened in the past if something else happens in the future. That's too much Marty McFly in his Polaroid picture, isn't it? Normally, the conditions come first for us. They set the stage for the conclusion that will be the result. If it snows today, which it won't, if it snows today, we will go sledding. The snow sets the conditions for the sledding. Or how about if the Padres have an all-star player, then they will trade him <laughs> for a player of lesser value. <laughs> Having a good ball player is the condition, the necessary condition that sets up the Padres' bad trades. I'm really getting the hang of this town. <laughs> so if you were to read our passage that way, the way normal conditional statements work, then it would say, if you hold fast to the gospel, then Christ will reconcile you. As if our faithfulness is the condition that Christ is looking for so that he can accomplish his work in us. That is not what it says. In fact, that's not what Hebrews says. That's not what 1 Corinthians says. In each of these, the author tells us something has happened already, unconditionally. Look again at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. There are no conditions there. There are no conditions that need to be met. Christ's work is the condition. And he has accomplished his work. You have, past tense, you have been reconciled. So why does Paul use the word if? Can someone who has been reconciled in Christ, in his body by his death, can someone whom Christ has died for and brought into salvation lose their salvation? Do we, mere sinners, created things, do we have the power to undo something that has been done by the God Almighty? I don't believe we can. I know we can't. Did we not read last week that in him all things hold together, including our salvation? All things mean all things. Even your salvation is being held together by the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. So what we need to see is that if statement isn't a condition, it is a warning. We are saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. And one of the means that God uses to keep us in that salvation is these warnings. He warns us what happens if we leave. If that's confusing, which this might be the first time you've heard this for many of you, let me give you an illustration. In the book of Acts, in chapter 27, there's this account of the Apostle Paul and a number of other Christians, and they're on their way from Caesarea to Rome 
to stand trial before Caesar. And a great storm rises up. And the crisis is to the point where where most of the 276 people that are on that ship, they believe they're going to die. It's been a long time. They're out of food. They're out of water. They're directionless. They're out to sea. And there's no control over their ship or where they're going. In the meantime, in that storm, God promises Paul that despite the dire circumstances in front of him, he is going to make it to Rome. And not one of the soldiers or sailors who is with him is going to die. It's a promise. It's going to happen. In God's mind, it is as good as done. And here's how Paul encourages the soldiers. Acts 27, verses 22 to 26. You can read along if you like. Acts 27, verse 22. Paul says to to them, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So then Paul says to them, he says, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But, it's always a but with Paul, but we must run aground on some island. There's a promise, isn't there? They will survive. All of them will survive. God has ordained it. But they need to, they must follow Paul's instruction. Paul's instruction is not the condition for their survival. God's promise is the condition for their survival. But Paul's instruction is God's means of bringing them to salvation. That's how Colossians works as well. Colossians 1.23 works that way. Christ's work, church, is what has saved you. You were alienated from him. You needed reconciling to him, and he's done it. It's done. He has sealed you with his spirit, and nothing will keep you from him. Nothing. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God And his word to you is what makes that so. His word keeps you in him. It's what draws you in. It's what keeps you abiding in him. Those who are truly in Christ, they hear Colossians 1.23, and they hear the warning. And then they say this, well, then I will continue in the faith. I will remain stable. I will remain steadfast. I will not shift from the hope of the gospel because Jesus Christ has reconciled me to himself. I will trust in him because he's already proven me that he's worthy of my trust. I will not look to anything else to bring me into fellowship with God. We hear the word and we take warning. We know that there are other things we could be hoping in. 
things that might tempt us every single day. We could put our hope in others' affirmation of us. We could put our hope in our wife's approval of us or a husband's approval of us. We could put our hope in our kids' success or our own wealth. But the word says we are reconciled to Christ if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So those of us who are in Christ will keep our hope in the gospel. We will keep our gaze on Christ because we understand that there is great danger in straying from the only thing worth putting our hope in. I want to close with this. It's from Charles Spurgeon. Many of you might have heard of him. He's an old London preacher from the 19th century, and he's addressing this very issue. And it's his work that I've been borrowing from, if you're wondering. <laughs> this is what he says. He says, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell them that if they did, he would be inevitably dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas, which would kill anyone who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down there, you will never come up alive. So who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic, and I don't know who has friends with cups of arsenic, but <laughs> Charles Spurgeon does. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we would drink it? No, he tells us the consequences, and he is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child of God do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God to a holy fear and caution because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could never be renewed and he stands far away from the great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. Christian, Christ has saved you by his work and he is keeping us from being dashed to pieces by crying out to us from his word, my grace is sufficient for you. My gospel is enough for you. The hope you have in me is better than any other hope. Look nowhere else. Keep your eyes on me because I have reconciled you. I have saved you. I love you and I'm making you new in me. Pray with me.